Welcome to Podcast on Fire on a Chinese ghost story. And it's the decade of Choi Hak bringing effects and a frantic energy to the Hong Kong fantasy movie, starting arguably with Sue Warriors from the Magic Mountain earlier in the decade. And in the aftermath, he set up his own company, Film Workshop, produced heroic bloodshed classics. And uh, by this point, uh, we uh, make a little stop at his work as producer in 1987. And we're going to talk to widely, globally popular a Chinese ghost story. Directed by Ching Siu Dong, uh, how does the man of action merge with the directing and producing visionary that is Choi Hak? Uh, some say visionary, some say fucking madman. And I love him either way, because he's, uh, he's admitted to uh, losing his mind making movies. Uh, but uh, look at the way they uh, turn out, and uh, we'll discuss uh, some of that uh, perhaps. Uh, my name is Kennedy, uh, with me to walk down memory lane, I'm sure, because uh, this can't be uh, first time viewing. Is East Screen or West Screens uh, the podcast uh, that featured heavily on CNN and uh, South China Morning Post? Uh, so uh, the person repping rep ESWS is Paul Fox. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here, whether we're talking about uh, good guys or ghosts. Indeed, and uh, you have uh, you have an option to uh, for the live karaoke that uh, is going to uh, happen during this episode. So you're either going to sing Leslie's theme or the Swordsman's rap and uh, do the accompanying uh, dance as well so think of that paul while i do while i talk about other matters in this show you just lost like 75 percent of the listenership with just that comment alone so. <laughs> the braver choice would be to do the uh so so say wuma swordsman's uh rap uh, people say it's a rap i mean it's it's a it's a wild song that takes place in the middle of uh, in the middle of the movie and i always heard that was performed uh, not by wuma but by James Wong. And he won an award for that. Cool. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. It's a, it's a movie where many people contributed classic work, classic creativity that they put forth. Uh, this is not just one little parenthesis on everybody's uh, resume. A Chinese ghost story is, uh, is uh, big and uh, globally loved and arguably uh, that it all earns that rep, in my opinion. But we'll get into some uh, background and uh, brief opinions after some brief opi- uh, brief contact information, rather. And this is uh, Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. It's the flagship show that covers mainly Hong Kong cinema, uh, vintage, some new, some mainland Chinese uh, slash Hong Kong cinema. gets covered every now and again as we try to educate ourselves on the latest uh, and uh, brightest that comes, uh, comes out of uh, China and Hong Kong. You can find our backlog of shows on podcastonfire.com. Links to our social media such as Facebook, Twitter are available in the show post that uh, you found on the site. Or you can click the buttons at the top of our website to reach those um, those social media platforms. And uh, you can also reach us on iTunes. There's a big button for that. So subscribe, leave a star rating and even a comment if you appreciate the show. We will, would, be, would be very grateful to see your comments on there. So I'm gonna cut it short for now. I do some writing too, but you know, you know where to find that. Hopefully, but everything is in the show post. So I'm gonna hand over to Paul to uh, do some plugging of his own. So uh, for people who do not know, and how could they not know? Because you've been in, on in South China Morning Post, and uh, your co-host Kevin Ma is uh, is uh, TV's Kevin Ma by now. So everybody, your, your profile is. Um, must be busy in your dance card, so to say, must be full after this media exposure. So uh, how's it been in the aftermath of uh, media exposure? Yeah, you'd have to talk to Kevin about that. He's I write, simply ride on his coattails of fame. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, yeah, we uh, do a show, East Screen, West Screen. You can find us over at concast.com. And 
We've been very fortunate, uh, you know, particularly because of Kevin and his, you know, exposure to the industry and uh, some of the work that he does and has gotten him some very well-deserved recognition across different platforms. And it's brought a little bit of attention to our show. And, you know, it's it's always good to get recognized uh, for the work that you do. Um, but recognition or not, we'd still do it because we love it. It would be amazing if they if CNN actually did include uh, the fact that uh, he's a co-host of the East Screen West Screen podcast. It just <laughs> struck me now, like what they they mention his past credits uh, in that interview piece, uh, Phil Bisasia. So why not mention his current credit? Uh, you know, uh, or, or podcasts are too uh, too much of an ugly thing for uh, for CNN or something. I don't know. But they just struck me now that that was uncool, CNN. <laughs> Somebody write Wolf Blitzer, right? Right now. Exactly. Breaking news. <laughs> East screen, West screen, not included. <laughs> Let, let's go over to Jake Tapper <laughs> over in the panel. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a break from the regular news. That's for sure. But uh, uh, Kevin Indy was on camera to do a, a segment, and we'll link to that so you can find out the full, uh, full piece. And they're on the Fantasia episode in the podcast on fire back catalog. Uh, the full story is, uh, is shared, and as well as on East Screen, West Screen. So uh, let's uh, take a musical break, and uh, let's, uh, you know, presumably and probably uh, logically, we should play a little piece from Leslie Cheung's theme from a Chinese ghost story. Are you so hardcore that you for the classic themes, Paul, that you've learned what they're called in Chinese and things like that, or that doesn't stick with you, uh, despite being a fan of the classic themes? Because uh, arguably this is like one of the top 10, maybe top five movie themes out of Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, I'm I'm unfortunately not a music guy. I do like listening to soundtracks, but I'm not somebody who does much in the karaoke circuit, which is a shame because that's one of the best ways to really learn a language well, uh, or so I've been told. Um, I'm just not a music guy, and but I do love the music for this film. And I misspoke a bit earlier when I said that uh, James Wong had won for the uh, Wu Ma song, which is called Path. But uh, actually, not he was nominated for that song. I think in both the Hong Kong Film Awards and the Golden Horse Awards. But it was the Sally Ye song that's in this that she sings that he was the lyricist on. Um, so he did, he composed the music for this film and he did the lyrics for, I think both the Leslie song and the Sally S song. And he himself sings the Wu Ma song uh, that's called Pass. So that year they should have just made two new awards. One, the Chai and Fat Best Actor Award, because Chai and Fat was nominated three times in the same category. And James Wong should have had his own award. <laughs> and best James Wong uh, creativity this year goes to... Yeah, all three songs from this film were among the best original film songs at the Hong Kong Film Awards that year Jeez. for nominations. So I, I think it was a, you know, it was pretty much a sure win for him at some point. For sure. Uh, well, we're going to take a musical break and listen to Leslie's theme of uh, of uh, this uh, from this movie. And uh, we're going to review a Chinese ghost story, talk of some background on it after the break. And welcome back in the review of this episode. We're only going to do one movie because I think it's a packed 
discussion and there's a background to be shared as well for this iconic movie and, and it is a Chinese ghost story from 1987 and plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows Leslie Cheung stars as Ning a meek tax collector who finds himself involved in a wacky supernatural romance he's slated to become a victim to enchanting ghost uh, is it Ni or Nai how do you pronounce NYE in Chinese I think it's it's ne if I'm if my if my if my mandarin's uh, up but to speed but it's not so don't quote me on that. So we're going to go with some uh, one of those three is probably correct. So he's later to become a victim to the enchanting ghost and she is played by Joey Wong and uh, that's uh, an iconic image from this movie as well and she's bound to an evil tree demon played by Lao Siu Ming who feeds on men's souls uh, Ning's uh, soul is headed for uh, consumption but due to a variety of uh, circumstances he's prevented from becoming soul food so to say uh, even more Nai or Ni whatever it grows to care for Ning and vice versa and then roving ghostbuster Wu Ma shows up to take down spirits uh, with his nifty Taoist methods uh, there's also impromptu singing sumptuous production design and a tree demon with an extraordinarily long tongue so it's a packed Hong Kong movie is it a two-packed Hong Kong movie for its own good well we'll get to that eventually but I think yeah it, it was suitable to do some background notes and uh, um, there, there are discussion points within them before we get to the actual movie hence this is the only movie for the episode. Um, and I'm sure some review notes will be dropped into the back and forth that you and I have here, Paul. So, uh, But uh, we'll keep it to the background for now. Uh, so A Chinese Ghost Story adapts one of the stories from uh, author Pu Songling's uh, famous book of stories called and translated to Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio. And if you're familiar with uh, King Hu's movie, A Touch of Zen, that movie adapted one of the short stories. And kind of the only reason I mention that is it's amusing that if you've seen A Touch of Zen, one, it's a three-hour-long movie. So, okay, what are you going to do with the short story? That's a very short story, Paul. I think it's about three pages long. The, the, the Pusong Ling story, that was the basis for a few of the characters in A Touch of Zen. Because that short story essentially is about a fox spirit. So it, it covers a little bit of A Touch of Zen. And then King Hu wrote something 80% disconnected from Pusong Ling. So um, he, he took... Uh, took some core and then made his own uh, made his own story based on that so uh, it's kind of a kind of a fascinating how that can work it's, so it's a compilation of uh, supernatural stories that uh, that has been translated into english i believe uh, either they did it once and it felt like a definitive thing or they've uh, worked on that translation uh, over the years but uh, have you ever had that interest, Paul, uh, be, being a fan of Hong Kong cinema, hearing strange stories from a Chinese studio being mentioned every now and again. To, have you been interested to look up the, the actual book of stories? Yeah, yeah, I have. Unfortunately, there's not a really, I mean, there's a couple translations in English that exist, but it's my understanding that the ones that are out there, there are two that are, I guess, somewhat famous. There's one older by a translator named Giles or Giles. It's been around a long time, and that one's pretty controversial because it was written in an earlier period, and or, or translated, I should say, in an earlier period. And the criticisms that have been levied against it are that he removes a lot of the sexuality and sexual references um, that are, you know, a part of these stories. That was done because of the time period, I guess. You know, it was a bit more conservative, and so in order to, you know, make the work more appealing, that had to be done. There's a later translation uh, done by another author scholar who 
puts those back in. You know, I've not really read a lot from either of the sources, uh, but I do from from what I've seen. I mean, there are like four hundred something stories in in the Pu Songling uh, collection. Not all of them are in the translations. Um, I, the, the the ones that I looked through as I looked through the chapter stories, they only have about a hundred or so of them. So there are a lot that haven't been translated over for whatever reason. And interestingly, this is one of the stories uh, that doesn't appear in the translations, the, the 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 story that we're given here, which is odd because it's, you know, one of the ones that's been done so many times over the years. And in, not just in movie form, there have been TV dramas and, um, you know, both in the mainland and uh, I think in Hong Kong and other parts, there was a, there's an Asia pack uh, manga comic book that was done for this story as well. Um, and the stories, they all are all kind of variations um, thus far. I don't know of any that's like an actual true to the, you know, Puzongling work uh, as, a, as the story narrative goes there. Um, they all kind of add in their own notions of romanticism for the era and the things that are considered sexy for the era for, you know, the ghost maidens and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there the, the certainly is an inherent, inherent like eroticism to a degree. I mean, uh, the, the old movie we're going to discuss in, lit, in a little bit doesn't have that, but the uh, Chinese ghost story has uh, some elements that you would deem to be erotica or sensual. So may, maybe, you know, whenever that one of those translations was made, maybe indeed that was too sensitive to put out in um, in writing, So uh, which is a shame because uh, why bother if you're going to strip something that's like a core of uh, of stories but uh, i may, i mentioned an old movie and uh, the a chinese ghost story was indeed not the first movie to bring this particular short tale to the screen because it was made as the enchanting shadow in 1960 at shaw brothers and directed by famed director li han xiang of love turn and kingdom and the beauty fame those are two famous operas the enchanting shadow isn't uh, one of those uh, operas so um, and I have my DVD version of, on order because uh, Paul was kind enough to remind me of uh, this because I knew about it and then forgot about it. Knew about it, then forgot about it. And finally, Paul said, I'm looking at the old movie. Then, God damn it. Thank God I have Paul here with me to remind me of <laughs> crucial things because it makes sense for the context to talk of the fact that there was an older movie. So I ordered the DVD version. It's not here yet. So I had to resort to uh, watching a download of it because I really did want to watch it but starting with you Paul to really set the stage a little bit for the Enchanting Shadow would you say it's a remake uh, or, or rather is a Chinese ghost story a remake of the Enchanting Shadow or do you think it, both of them in their own way follow the beat of the written story and you can't really compare the two you know Li Han Shang and Choi Hak and Ching Sudong's approaches are you know way different versus each other no, I definitely think that the the 87 film sets out to be a remake of the Enchanting Shadow movie. And you get this sense through the story beats, but also a little bit of the art direction, the art design, character design, especially with the um, the Swordsman Yin character. I think there's the Wu Ma version is very closely modeled. On, on the version in the 1959 film in terms of kind of the outlook and, and the attitude. He even does a a sword dance in that one. It's not, you know, obviously you have the, the James Wong song in the 87 film, which is much more dynamic and much more exciting. And, and for 
somebody of my generation perhaps entertaining, but still that that element is there. Um, you get other visual cues and visual elements. It's co- of course nowhere near as dynamic. It's not. There's a little bit of martial arts action towards the end, but even that is very pale by comparison to what Ching Sutong and Soi Hark bring to the screen, where it just becomes balls to the wall crazy at one point, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But still, I mean, as somebody who really appreciates films from this time, especially, you know, seeing some of these pl- players like, um, I think it, it's Betty Lee is the actress, right? Uh, Betty Lowe, Betty Lowe T, uh, who, who's uh, one of the leads from Loveton. Right. And so, you know, seeing her take on this this classic role and her portrayal and some of the sensibilities and the performances of it's a very different kind of sensuality, but it's one that's part of that sort of it's not really Hoang Mei opera, but it's still got some of those kind of elements to it. Um, it's a, still a very entertaining watch. And even some of the effects they do for the period, um, I found quite entertaining and quite surprising. It's it's really, um, no, not that I doubted it, because I knew, I knew Shaw Brothers, they, they were producing high-quality movies in 1960 that had been at it for a few years. So, but it really is impressive, technically, the way Li Hanshang, who had an eye for these things, but in the way he uses those expansive Shaw Brothers sets, because they don't shoot little corners and play drama there and stage actors, uh, just plant actors there and have them talk back and forth in a little corner. But the camera really follows and let us see these expansive sets as Betty Loti moves through them as the, you know, the impeccable, uh, we don't know it in, in uh, until very late in the movie that, that she's a ghost, but she's impeccable versus the rundown uh, portions of that uh, castle or that uh, abandoned inn or whatever. And uh, that showcase is quite marvelous, I think, uh, because it, it it makes the movie feel big and it makes the movie feel like it truly matters back then and certainly it still matters now. They did remaster this movie and put it out on DVD, so uh, it wasn't uh, lost to anything from the Shaw Brothers vault. So. And uh, for fans of a Chinese ghost story, I think it's uh, it really is a must-watch because it's a fascinating uh, piece of history that an old movie... Um, that 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 is an older movie of the same uh, from the same story. You can appreciate the different pace to it and different approach to it. But one of my favorite aspects of it is the fact that it, for large parts of the story, Paul, it feels very like, like a soft ghost story, very gentle, still the same story. And I can imagine in 1960 when he then switches to the horror beats that that would have scared the crap out of audiences back then. Because the the makeup effects, they're crude, but they're, 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 they're horrendous. The, yeah. the images are not... Um, they, it's it's not like just the actors bathed in a green light, right? But he does... He, it looks like um, some people stomped on, uh, on the, these actors' faces, <laughs> the way they look. Yeah, and I mean, it's... It definitely, for the period, I think, works very well in terms of that. You know, it, it's not a horror film by any by any means, and I wouldn't say that Chinese Ghost Story 87 is a horror film either, but it does have those supernatural elements, and it can give you a little bit of fright at some, at some points. Um, you know, because you're part of the, you know, it's bringing you in like the Ning Choi-san character to this supernatural world. So you are kind of along... For the ride with him, you know, encountering things as you go. 
Um, the one thing that kind of stands out for me, though, that, you know, when, when we talk about the 87 film and how the music becomes very kind of indicative and, and it, it kind of pulls you back to that moment, the, the interesting thing here is heavy use of a theremin for ghostly sounds throughout, which for some reason it just it it almost took me out of the film at points to like British horror and ghost movies from the 50s for some reason. And I know that with any cinema, you're borrowing elements from other cinema that's popular of the time. But it was just, it was like almost every other scene, like hearing that ghostly theremin kind of, you know, echoing throughout instead of a more robust soundtrack, I would say. Um, that that was one thing that I noticed from, from the 59 version, the 60 version, um, that really stood out in my mind. He's an interesting director to follow because he, he had various cycles and therefore widely different genres he worked in uh, Lianxiang, including uh, later on doing erotica and then going back to these uh, widescreen uh, period movies uh, like he became famous for. But um, he wasn't shy about uh, making um, making adult movies. And, and I mean, a movie like Below the Turn, I can never really appreciate on its cultural impact and how the songs are lodged into um, local viewers. Uh, but... Uh, I sure do like it because, you know, it's also that uh, the Butterfly Lovers story, The Love Eternal. So, you know, that from uh, speaking of Troy Hark again, you know that from The Lovers, his movie, that same story. So, it's not uh, The Love Eternal doesn't have this story that you can't penetrate or anything. So, uh, but uh, if, uh, peak, you know, uh, if if opera grates on you, then you're not going to enjoy it. But I, I'm, I find myself. Uh, Rewatching a beloved turn every now and again. I do think the Kingdom and the Beauty is actually a stronger and easier way in if you want to watch this. Um, if you want to watch an opera that's uh, also sort of entertaining and easy to digest from this period from Shaw Brothers and the director, I would recommend the Kingdom and the Beauty first. It's it's shorter and uh, it uh, it's a little bit easier on on the on the eyes and ears. So, and if you're completely new to it, you can always try to jump into something like uh, Chinese Odyssey 2002, I think, where they do a lot of the songs and, and some of the staging. Yeah. I never would have picked up on that back then, but I haven't rewatched that uh, that movie. Uh, uh, I loved it, though. Uh, I thought it was very funny, but uh, the love turn um, aspect to it all, I didn't pick up on. Who knew Wong Kar-wai wanted to be funny in 2002? But there you go. He still had a little funny beating heart in him. Uh, at any rate, uh, moving on a little bit to um, to a Chinese ghost story. I mean, I have a question here, but I'm going to talk a little bit of the background at the same time. So if I post this question and I can let you think about it a little bit, who do you see and hear more when watching a Chinese ghost story? And by that, I mean, do you see Choi Hak more or do you see the vision of Ching Su Tong more? Because the, the rep is, and Choi Hak has admitted to this, that he's a hands-on driven producer and a hands-on very driven and mad director sometimes so and he's not very so he's not very casual about his involvement and sometimes i've heard that he goes directed certain movies took over certain movies and simply looked over the shoulder of other directors to ensure that a production was going according to to his vision as a producer and again he's admitted to going nuts and being angry while making movies there's a Fantastic documentary on the blade where he he just laughs it off and says I was completely mad <laughs> and, uh, and uh, but he got it made uh, so um, and, and and by the way if you go by Wikipedia to uh, there's a 
uh, there's a quote by Tony Raines, uh, UK um, film expert, uh, Tony Raines, who said that, well, there's a good chance if anything is film workshop, then there's a good chance that uh, a movie that he produced would be hijacked in some shape or form by by Choi Hak, even though he might have said it cheekily. But as much as we love him, he I, I can't think or imagine rather that he's always easy to work with. Uh, so, um, uh, so if we go back to the original question here, when you watch a Chinese ghost story, is it is it pure Choi Hak or is it uh, a mixture of uh, of the two visionaries here? I think Choi Hak is the one that immediately comes to mind when you think of especially the aesthetics, the look. The sound, um, the the tone, the color tones, all of that, it, it speaks to him. And even some some of the scenes as I was rewatching this, I'm thinking, you know, that that feels like it was almost uh, an afterthought from um, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain. And you know, I think that if you look at the body of work that Ching Siu Tong has done as a director, which is great, you don't see the same kind of aesthetic carryover. Um, to his work as you do with somebody like Tsui Hark. His focus tends to be more on the action set pieces. And those are here and they're great. But I think when I think back on this film, I'm always thinking more to the tone and the aesthetics, um, the, the look and the feel of what's going on in the background and, and more so than the action sequences themselves. It's not a bad trade-off, I think, uh, considering uh, the following. Um, I mean, I mean, they, uh, as they went into this movie, it said that while they had this ongoing working relationship, uh, Choi Hak and, and uh, Ching Sudong or Tony Ching, because uh, he'd worked on as action director on Peking Opera Blues and A Better Tomorrow. But as a director, he wasn't that interested in making a romance or a ghost story. And um, he, he was apprehensive. Maybe he doubt, doubted his ability to make a romance and a ghost story and a fantasy. But uh, they, they, they certainly went into, into celluloid battle together. And it couldn't have been terrible because... Uh, they they must have agreed on a vision and uh, thought it was agreeable in the end because Ching Sudong was the director of Chinese Ghost Story 1, 2 and 3, even though um, 2 were only Leslie and uh, we had a new lead for 3. But uh, I think that speaks volumes that ultimately they could work together rather than having contrasting visions and one not being keen on being there. <laughs> you know, so, so So ultimately it must have been agreeable, I think. Well, I think however it came together, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, oil and water or some other kind of uh, mixture combination, it the end result speaks for itself and it was good. So, yeah, it uh, it doesn't scream problematic uh, and uh, fragmented and um, barely strung together because of uh, contrasting forces or anything. And uh, I haven't seen three in a while, but two, two I saw a while back, which is fun. And but but all of them all of them are good. Uh, he wasn't the, the director, and maybe for obvious reasons, because um, they made a fourth Chinese ghost story. But by that point, it was uh, Chinese ghost story animation. Even even though even though Choi Hak produced that, I don't think you look for live action directors when uh, when crafting animation. So uh, so Ching Sudong wasn't the director of that. I think we're gonna get to the animation at one point because one it's kind of i don't know if it's elusive to get nowadays but it's certainly not spoken of very very much and when i saw it after getting that dvd many years ago i was kind of super impressed this is fun and wow it's impressive looking too and Choi Hak is part of the voice cast he's the dog <laughs> that, that was just marvelous fun for me all those things combined 
It's I had the same experience because I kind I remember back when I first ordered it and got it, um, and I was just it, I was completely surprised because you at this point you know I what was it like late nineties yeah ninety seven even yeah it's like you know people know well enough about Japanese animation but like Hong Kong animation China animation what is that. So I had no expectation going in and didn't know what to expect. And I was really floored. And the thing that was most disappointing about that is that nothing ever followed. I was expecting like Toy Hark Animation Studios, you know, that mm-hmm. we'd get more films over the years. But I guess he scratched an itch and that was enough for him. Yeah. And um, then then what followed? I don't know. I uh, got Master Q a few years later doing uh, CG and live action. And now it's all um, he's living in uh, in 3D worlds, if you will, and crafting 3D worlds, uh, regardless of what you think of that. That's what he's focusing on now. And a Chinese ghost story hasn't turned up again. We're going to get to this point. But by the way, did he produce the remake or was he off that completely? I would have to check. I don't think he had any involvement in that at all. Um, Produced, but no, it's all mainland names, it looks like. Gotcha. Going back to the Chinese ghost story, it did a respectable 18.8 million Hong Kong dollars at the box office. So combine that with uh, a lasting reputation and and fame, it uh, certainly has stayed in the viewer consciousness, uh, even post its cinema run. So uh, uh, because uh, I don't think it was a top earner in 87 or anything. Uh, I think big movies were you know easily went over 20 million back in the day but it was uh, multi-nominated at the hong kong film awards for best film director and actress and ended up winning best art direction as paul mentioned best score best song which is the salie theme song that plays during the um, the love scene i believe between um, leslie and joey and uh, leslie's song uh, was nominated as well it was a busy category as we talked of but it was an, an amazing year paul to compete in and uh, an amazing uh, roster of movies to compete with because that year we had the likes of An Autumn's Tale uh, up for awards, City on Fire, Prison on Fire, Better Tomorrow 2 and Giant Fat was nominated three times in the same acting category and predictably he won and I'm going by memory, I think he won for City on Fire, was nominated for Prison on Fire and An Autumn's Tale. So uh, I don't think they nominated him for A Better Tomorrow 2 because... um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Not the best movie that year from Chai, in fact, or anyone involved. Uh, maybe Dean Sheck was nominated uh, instead in that, uh, in that one. <laughs> best uh, best uh, mental patient uh, performance in a 1987 movie goes to Dean Sheck. Uh, in Taiwan, by the way, uh, he uh, he won for an autumn's tale, a giant fat. But uh, in Taiwan, at the Golden Horse Awards for a Chinese ghost story, things were flipped mightily. It won best film. It won Best Supporting Actor for Wu Ma and a couple of uh, technical awards. So it was uh, audience entertainment uh, that was uh, hugely respected by uh, awards jurors uh, as well. So it was cool to see that something um, very commercial uh, got respected as a film and uh, technically as well. And uh, that's the background notes. Uh, let's uh, get to the review notes and... Um, our brief opinions, first of all, even though we've hinted at it. And, uh, I mean, for me, it uh, did it deserve and does it deserve the popularity it gained, the cult fame it gained? And that it absolutely does deserve because it's it's close to the top quality in the fantasy genre in Hong Kong in the 80s. Um, and uh, it's it's one of those Choi Hak productions that also snuck out to the West and was one of the best 
that snuck out to the West. So it was not like other gems of Choi Hark were neglected, uh, like I think happened with the director of story of Ricky, for instance. That's his famous mo- most famous movie, but it's not his best movie by any stretch of the imagination. But the other ones had trouble traveling. A Chinese ghost story really did travel, even though I, I'm sure it didn't get wide cinema releases everywhere, but it always traveled in some shape or form, and that's uh, encouraging. So it's a pure classic. It's packed, but not overly packed, thankfully. So it's a tight movie, and uh, it strikes a chord with you technically, design-wise. It's funny and exciting, widely creative. Got a great score and theme, and everything's really iconic here, uh, despite the story being this basic, often told, ghost man romance that's always doomed to fail. Because uh, there's always going to be a line that ghost and man do not uh, do not fall in love, do not intermingle, and all of that. So, in short, simply terrific. So, uh, what's your sh- short opinion before we get into it, uh, Paul? Yeah, I mean, it, if you talk about films that you want to use to introduce people to Hong Kong cinema, uh, this one is going to be high on the list for sure. It is, you know, it's classic for me. It's the best of the bunch between the nineteen. 19- uh, 5960 version between this one and between the 2011 version. Uh, this one still holds the top spot. It's just got such a great combination. I think if you talk about as a romance piece, the chemistry between Leslie and Joey is perhaps the most solid um, across the films. And it's just got some crazy fun effects for the era, the look, the feel, the sound, all works really well together. And it even has, you know, what seems to be influence from other films. So, I mean, there's some points where I think uh, special effects wise, they're doing some effects with tree branches that made me instantly think back to Sam Raimi Mm -hmm. and the Evil Dead movies. Um, No tree um, uh, rape in this one, though. No, no, but (laughs) but still, it's the the way they're kind of doing it. it, It's very evocative of. Yeah, yeah, some POV shots and things like that, you know, uh, some POV, uh, some force shots, uh, but not uh, as extensive as Sam did. But I think Sam has often kept an eye on on Asian cinema and maybe Hong Kong cinema to a degree, and uh, and and vice versa. And obviously, John Carpenter took inspirations from Zoo as he crafted Big Trouble in Little China. So uh, the the back and forth, sort of uh, paying homage, paying respect, uh, I think is there. Uh, Choi Hak is international and well-traveled enough cinematically where he can acknowledge that, uh, oh my, that, uh, that Sam Raimi kid is doing shots that you don't normally do in movies. Let's uh, up my game. <laughs> no, I'm gonna roll, roll with the camera on the ground in the future in uh, in, in my martial arts movie like I did in the Blade. So the compelling uh, blue and the contrast with colors as the movie starts, you know that interplay between yellow and blue, the the wind that then takes the long garments uh, uh, with it, you know that that visual sort of cue or visual cues is just classic hong kong fantasy and how it really should look for maximum comfort and it certainly looks great but paul a lot of people tried this especially in the wake of a chinese ghost story and most uh, well not most of the time but some of the time especially some of the erotic movies that try to be a chinese ghost story it just looked like a couple of uh, crew members took a couple of actors out in the forest some blue lights a wind machine and the actors had some long garments and then they turned everything on and hoped for the best, which made you realize, Paul, how sharp of a vision this is. It's not low-budget fare that managed to to be good. 
but rather they, they, there is a full-on focus technically to get this uh, to build this world through those design elements that I talked of and obviously all uh, all post-production elements uh, like effects and music so I, I was think it's marvelous when you go back to movies like this or when you go back to John Woo's movies that you realize that his gunplay is still better than most that uh, followed and and when you look back on a Chinese ghost story versus having seen maybe cheaper versions you realize that this is still the better one like you realize how good it was and I don't know if you ever registered that in your viewing when you go back and forth between classics and maybe lesser classics uh, that it really strikes you that Oh my, what effort. It's not a crazy, crazy time that's made uh, by some amateurs or anything. So um, I don't know what you think, if you ever noticed that in your viewing, that uh, it's fun to go back to the ones that are, that are classic because of all of this. Yeah, I think that, you know, they hold a certain place, especially for those of us who you know, encountered them early on. Uh, they, they, they capture this certain era or a period of filmmaking, and they remain points of nostalgia for us. Um, but there's, like you said, there's a lot that came in in the wake of this that tried to capitalize on the look, the feel, and even in some cases, the the actors themselves. So, I mean, I think poor Joey Wong got typecast in quite a few of these kind of spirit type. The narrative itself, when we talk about this idea that, uh, you know, you have a kind of young, innocent guy and he meets a ghost, but she's a ghost with a heart of gold. That that is very much the central component of this story. Is used in so many films over the years. Um, there are too many to count. I mean, one of my favorite spoof spinoffs of this is called um, Burning Sensation, from a few years later in 1989, and it stars Kenny B. and he's a firefighter, and Carol Chang is the ghost, and even Wu Ma is in it, and he's the direct. He directed this film. And he's, but he's kind of in the same like mentor. He's not a swordsman, but he's kind of like this mentor spirit buster guy. And it's, you know, it's just such a complete direct ripoff, but it's set in the modern day, you know, so it's got that different take on it. But it's still, it's, it's almost the same story in a sense. So, you know, some of these are more fun than others, but I think ultimately they all pull, point back to, this film, which again, we can argue points back to something like Enchanting Shadow itself, because there's so much taken from that film for this film. Yeah, and I don't remember how, you know, I've seen a fair amount of Shaw Brothers movies, but I can't for the like of me remember any thread that starts with Enchanting Shadow and then runs through five, six, seven, eight, nine other movies that are super well known. Uh, you know, that that, that there was um, an, an avalanche of similar movies after that. Um, could be interesting to do that research if uh, Shaw Brothers, um, at least before Shaw Brothers hit uh, their swordplay period and their kung fu period and what have you, because uh, we weren't quite there yet. But uh, spe- speaking of Leslie, by the way, I think he's so well suited as this. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, almost like a kid. He's a little bit wide-eyed as he walks this world. Not really used to it probably not out and about that much he has a job but clearly he's an easy uh, victim you know uh, he has no experience he can be probably uh, used to a degree and uh, that wide-eyed sort of sensation and experiencing a lot of things for the first time (laughs) including meeting a ghost and falling in love probably it's not obviously that terribly deep as i'm as it seems like i'm talking about it but 
the 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 sort of arc of the character i think works very well because he's he's uh, he's very oblivious to what's happening around him when even when he's trying to be heroic and protect joey wong she's protecting him as a matter of fact because um she uh has powers to do so and he's also oblivious to dangers around him you know the whole set piece with uh, the approaching um, stop motion corpses or the stop mo- or, or the puppets that they also use in the same sequence he, do- he doesn't know they're there most of the time so that's slightly less than fully adult version of the character i think is so i don't know if it's fair to say well suited to leslie but he's so likable in a role because he's not he's not dumb he's not clumsy he's not just not used to this world Maybe it's his first time collecting rent or whatever, as he as he does. But uh, it's part of the world building that I very much love. And uh, th- this world contains graphic violence. I mean, uh, Lam Wai's short cameo at the beginning of the film. Uh, he chases uh, people and he beheads someone. And Leslie's struck with a dash of blood. And um, that's part of the wild world building that I think uh, should be in there. We, we get a sense of this is what's happening. And we also get a sense of, uh, obviously, that there's supernatural elements out in this world. And as packed as this movie feels, Paul, when you list elements that are in this, because a lot of things go is going on, I never got this sense that uh, things was uh, hard to take and understand. They, it didn't feel like they were throwing too much at us in one go. And we had to struggle and wade through elements to kind of try and determine if Leslie is any good or not, or if the effects are any good or not. So for, for me, it felt like everything was building up at a nice pace, despite it having the impression of being a wild movie. And that balance, I think, is very hard to get to get right, if you know what I mean. I think it still handles itself very well. And the idea, too, that it's retelling this tale to be more appropriate for the time period. So it's a bit sexier by modern standards than, say, Enchanting Shadow was. But also it it modifies itself story-wise. So I've read a couple different translated synopsises of this particular story. The, the original one I read goes something like this. So the Ning Choison character is a scholar. He's traveling across country to go to his exams, I think. Um, and he stumbles one night into this temple where he encounters uh, Susin, the, the ghost. And he um, finds that she's trapped there by a tree spirit. And so he helps her get away. And so that sounds, it sounds pretty much like the story we've got. But in the original tale, he's already married. He has a wife who's very sick. And because he's helped Susan get away she decides to stay with him and help him and he she helps him with his sick wife and eventually she goes on and passes away through normal means and then Susan is able to because of her good deed she's able to become fully human and becomes Ning Choison's wife so that's one one translation of the story that that I've read another one says has it where it's not his wife but it's his uh, elderly mother um, and I don't know if either one is is the more accurate one for anybody who's actually read the Chinese version of the Apui Songling tale. You know, please write in and, and let us know which one is more accurate. But, um, I, I, you know, ideally the sensibility is very different because during those times it was more common, I think, for someone to have a second wife or to have a concubine. 
especially if you're a scholar and then if the first wife dies the concubine becomes you know the the head wife or the second wife kind of thing you know it's more common here in more, the more modern sensibilities we lose that element in enchanting shadow and i think here in the 87 version we, we you, you lose that kind of polygamy element and it just becomes this kind of a monogamous romantic you know star-crossed lovers tale from different worlds yeah, and, and still it feels very, um, nothing's missing as such. Uh, granted, we don't get a, a ton of background to Leslie's character, but the, it's it's very well contained and built upon, uh, and especially as they build a world. And, and uh, expectedly, they uh, break it up with a little bit of comedy too. But I think, again, packs many things in one. There, there is a focus on that the comedy should be broad, but not a sort of replacement for the fact that we don't know what to do now so let's just do some comedy and we'll figure it out because i don't know if they satirize the world a little bit uh, the law enforcement seems to be incredibly bored and uh, ready to go at a moment's notice though because they uh, they chase uh, fugitives so they have wanted posters they uh, they put up all over town and they carry them with them and they stop people does it look like that guy nope and but they also <laughs> it's so funny the, the the scenes in the town when they think someone is shouting a little bit too loud or if they think someone has said fugitive they run out swords raised and ready to go <laughs> and and they repeat that gag a couple of times in the movie but for for me paul that was never too broad for the movie and i think it was uh, rather delightful to uh, and it cracked me up that they were the the this foolish uh, but uh, even even though it doesn't really matter for the story i like that breakup uh, of um, of the world building uh, into a little bit of comedy and then continue to get leslie towards uh, the the subsequent story and and but it is understated in a couple of uh, places uh, because uh, Leslie's uh, book where he keeps uh, records of all the uh, debts and rent to collect that has uh, actually um, uh, all the ink has uh, smeared uh, after having been in the rain and all of that and when he opens up the book and the guy who owns the rent realizes that ha ah, well there's no record of me owing anything so we're down to zero essentially. Those interactions rather delighted me because um, it was a bit more understated than uh, than usual. And I think you can sort of point that towards Choi Hak in a way. He's comfortable with comedy and had some comedy traction in the 80s too. So so even before you know we meet uh, Joey Wong's character, even before we get all these uh, perils in the woods with the wolves and then the corpses that uh, are under the floorboards and uh, all the effects showcase. That part of the world building, the the funny part of it, did st- stick out uh, to me, even though it doesn't dominate the movie as such. So um, uh, all good fun. And uh, no performer really, Paul, other than Wuma later in the movie, I won't spoil why, breaks out into being broad leslie is more he, he isn't designed to be a clown or anything he's just a, in peril and a little bit panicked here and there so they really reserve the only comedic uh, burst or only reserve for some of the you know supporting characters or the brief characters and then a little bit for wuma so a bit bit more balanced than the usual hong kong movie when you think about it or, or what do you think yeah i mean I, there's definitely cool quite well-timed and placed comedic beats aside from, I think, the mercenaries or 
they're not really cops, I guess, but they're bounty hunters or some, 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 some kind of group of guys who want to get bounties for wanted people. You also have, you mentioned the zombies that are kind of living beneath the end, the desiccated corpses of everybody who's been uh, drained by the, the ghosts. And I, my note for them was keystone zombies because <laughs> basically it's, you know, that's what happens to them. They are, they are the subject of much misfortune uh, by an unaware uh, Leslie Chung. Right. And uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's funny and, and almost tragic what ends up happening to them is they just want to have a meal. But you, you also have a moment later on where they get into a little bit of a court case and who do we have as the judge? But none other than Mr. Wong Jing himself. Yeah, that <laughs> as, was uh, not a cameo I remembered. Yeah, he's there, um, and his assistant is uh, perhaps somebody many may not know, but uh, David Wu 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 Dai Wai, who is becomes he's he worked more in production and whatnot. He was the director for uh, Bread with White here too, I think. And you know, he's there kind of as the the goofy assistant. And there's some back and forth there about you know, paying, you know, not, not being worth, uh, his time and, and the, the way that the, the legal system's working, I think a little bit of a, a commentary on things. And you get a lot more of that, of course, in, uh, Stephen Chow movies like Hail the Judge and, um, Justice My Foot and things like that. But a little bit of, you know, a comedic beat that's here, that's part of a subplot story that we don't see in Enchanting Shadow at all. So again, I think they're trying to, not be full on on the romance side, not be full on on the horror side. They're trying to, you know, set up these beats. And th this was by design from everything that I've read, right? This was something that came out, I, I think, of the Cinema City days and where they were basically doing color coding for like every 10 minutes or every reel of film where they had to have a bit of action, maybe a bit of horror if it's a horror film, and uh, a bit of comedy, you know, so that you're you're kind of meeting all those tick boxes for, you know, each segment or each reel of film in order to keep the audience appeased. And this is what kind of set the standard um, in those early 80s films, Aces Go Places and, and, and things like that, that I think carry over into um, some of this later stuff that we're seeing now. And yet it doesn't feel jarring as such. You know, it doesn't feel calculated. As such, because the way you talk about it, it just screams it's gonna come off as calculated. I mean, if anything, if that formula was applied to something like A Better Tomorrow, where there's comedy in like real one and two, then then it feels jarring, you know, when mm. uh, during Choi Hak's cameo and he picks his nose or whatever, and Leslie Cheung is being a, being a buffoon as uh, Emily Chu is uh, performing, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing the audition and stuff like that. So, but but here it feels supernatural and uh, you could also swear uh, su supernatural <laughs> it feels natural and it is supernatural but you can also swear it's uh, that this movie you know it feels like it's a uh, it's done in the wake of once upon a time in china because the twirling sword play from the stuntman and the active camera and the frantic editing as the flying skills are depicted feels very sharp, but it's not like Choi Hak invented all of this in 1990 or 1991. Uh, this type of action existed. It just took off a little bit more. So uh, by that time with Swordsman and Once Upon a Time in China. But uh, th this sharp aspect of the action is uh, is not a surprise. It is frantically edited and not always coherent. But in a way it overcomes that uh, as uh, Wu Ma has a fight scene with uh, Lam Wai and then Leslie ends up 
in the middle of uh, of the swords and all of that that quick cut movement is still visually and orally compelling to me paul uh, plus you have the twist of the ordinary man stuck between the swords you know and uh, often quick cuts and that quick editing would be a uh, a negative for the movie but i think they, they get away with it uh, ching su dong and uh, choi hak and everybody involved get away with it because it is part of the the atmosphere and the energy of the movie that is still compelling and obviously coherent enough it's not like they they uh, go all born on us and we don't appreciate anything and plus the characters are involving you know, we we want to know more of who Wu Ma is. I wanted to know more about Lam Wai, by the way. I'm, I'm a bit uh, disappointed he wasn't in the movie as much or he didn't get his own spin-off or whatever, but uh, that's, a, that's a story for another time. But uh, you, you you wonder about Wu Ma, if he's going to be a light character, if he's going to be a Lam Ching-Ying ghost-busting master that is going to remain stoic throughout the movie. And, you know, combine, well, it's quick-cut and kind of incoherent, but cool, plus... I want to know more about these characters, especially when Wu Ma and Leslie are interacting. That brings it home, I think. So, so action doesn't become incoherent, especially not when later in the movie they have extended wire shots that are very elegant and graceful. So it's not like this is Ching Sudong's only technique in conveying action or anything. So he knows when to capture it in an elegant way because uh, the appearance of joey in the long flowing garments that needs to feel elegant as shot too you know so uh, so there, there, there's a an understanding of um, how she, how she moves in this world if you will so uh, so ultimately uh, it, it, uh, it you know the action aspect uh, gets a huge pause too even though you think of effects a lot when thinking back on a chinese ghost story so um it's a, ma- a good mixture, and, uh, and and you touched upon the corpses, by the way. Can, can you remember Chohak experiencing a, experimenting a lot uh, before or after this movie with stop motion? Because uh, that was a nice little, I think this is pretty unique for this movie, uh, the experimentation with stop motion effects with the corpses crawling forward and all of that, and then mix that with puppets. Can you remember him trying that technique elsewhere? Uh, not that it comes to mind. I, I, I mean, the main thing that I... I remember about this was that I had not seen any stop motion when I originally saw this from out of Hong Kong. I had not seen any anybody using stop motion to that extent before. So yeah, yeah. puppets. Yeah, I mean uh, stuff like seating of a ghost and uh, and uh, those uh, horror movies that Shaw Brothers. They they were having fun, but um, I think it uh, plays a part in Choi Hak's way of uh, okay, how do we forward our cinema? And maybe that he, I, I think it looks good. If he didn't do it subsequently, maybe he didn't think that that experiment uh, warranted another try, or he couldn't find any way to uh, to inject it elsewhere. I mean, uh, I think the special effects know-how got better and better, so they didn't need to lean on stop motion. But um, I don't know what you think, but I I, I think the mixture works uh, wonderfully well. It, it's nostalgia, yes, to mix stop motion shots with then obvious puppets, but. It feels like a physical world, this Paul, which is why I think I stayed away from the remake, because one, I don't need another Chinese ghost story, but this one has such a special place in my heart, because despite being a effects showcase, it feels like a physical world they're depicting in a lot of ways. The mixture is of post-production effects and actual on-set effects is there, and I find that 
way more compelling and it's the old man talking in me i'm sure i'm sure younger generation would look at a 1987 movie and think this is dorky man this looks puppets i mean where's the where's the where's the robot smashing each other to bits for three hours maybe my argument doesn't hold water but um, i'd rather have a physical world as depicted here uh, rather than a big old uh, 3d cg world that's why maybe recent Choi Hack movies aren't as compelling, but uh, that's another story for another time. So, are you, are you that old man too that uh, pines for how movies were created, crafted back in the eighties rather than now? I mean, I to to some extent, yes, especially when they're relying too heavily on CG and it's not very good. I think in some cases there are films out there where the film has gotten to a point to where the CG is starting to look really good and it's starting to interact with the film look itself very well. So it doesn't look like, you know, you don't get that obvious green screen effect. Those are still few and far between. There are still far too many of these special effects blockbusters out there that are, they just look like they were done on a PlayStation 2, um, which is which is unfortunate. But they're getting better and, you know, uh, so... You know, hopefully we'll get better material going forward uh, as they get better and better. I mean, if I believe in anyone trying to get this right, it is Choi Hak. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen all of his movies um, in the last five, six, seven, eight years. But obviously the first Detective D movie I quite liked. Looking back on it, it might not rely that much on CG. So I remember some crazy effects not being... Uh, about, uh, oh, look at us being at a fa- in a fantastical, heavenly like environment or anything. Uh, but, but granted, I bailed on movies like uh, uh, his Tiger Mountain nonsense because uh, I, I got sick of that 3D in that one. So uh, case-to-case basis where it works for you nowadays with Choyak, or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I really love Detective D, but there's a sequence in there with an animated deer that just pulls me right out of the movie. It's just not a very good sequence. And again, it's, you know, with these movies, it's a case by case basis. Um, I think we're going to talk about the remake briefly in just a moment, which upon rewatch actually holds up a little bit better than some of the other remakes that are out there, Um, like uh, Green Snake and Sorcerer and the White Snake, I should say. And but again, other stuff is coming that I think has surprised me. Um, So some of the stuff that they did for most recently, I'd say Monster Hunt 2 was looking better and better but the monkey king the the um, the second monkey king film in particular um the third one is also quite good the story is not as interesting for me as the second one but that i mean soy chung seems to know what he's doing when it comes to the use of, of cg effects i think uh for the stuff that soy hark's doing can be still hit and miss but it's still above and beyond what a lot of the mainland china stuff in and of itself is is doing but even that's getting better so yeah, I certainly like the way uh, The Monkey King 2 looked from a technical standpoint. Uh, it, it felt like a world I wanted to invest in. And uh, and I was happy to, because uh, that movie was funny. Well, fun and funny. Uh, Aaron Kwok as The Monkey King was the best thing ever that uh, that I've experienced for a while. I just thought that was wonderful. And Gong Li had a ball being, being evil. So yep. um, I still prefer... <laughs> like scenes in a Chinese ghost story that's pure reverse photography, like uh, Wu Ma putting out a fire. You know that's yeah. uh, you know that that's, that's just reverse photography, but it works for me, man. Old school trickery still works for me because it's there, it's physically there. He's uh, he's doing that. That's not Wu Ma superimposed afterwards. 
And some of the practical effects that just, uh, you know, still stick in my mind because they're so bizarre, not really from a horrifying standpoint. I mean, if you're a kid, you're probably going to have nightmares. But like when the tree demon is zooming around with its tongue, basically, and then Wuma traps it and it's trying to go after Leslie Chung and then it kind of just the skin rips back and it kind of opens up and then there's the face inside and it's just like, you know, it's like a psychotic dream that somebody had and said, make this into a practical thing. <laughs> and it looks great. Let's talk a little bit about Joey, because it's great that she was nominated. But sometimes I, I feel she doesn't get props for the sort of emotional hook that this role requires. Because she she's a beautiful woman. She she's the, the, These costumes were just made for her. And that... She's great at inhabiting the exterior that's needed. And no wonder she became a visual icon and got recast in the role many, many times. But there is an emotional component there that she seems very in tune with her change of facial expressions of concern. And that switch from, you know, being forced to act like a more sensual being in order to capture men, but then showing concern to this this character that Leslie plays that doesn't know any better. He doesn't know this world. I think it's underrated. It's not the greatest drama ever told, of course, but they are icons for this movie, uh, and they share that iconic... Uh, you, you know, you remember... Vis- visually, you remember I- iconic things from this movie, and and that applies to the romance that is good enough and then some, I think, because she is... Uh, you sympathize with her plight to an enough extent. And uh, I, I think she flows back and forth in many ways. I mean, she, her, her costumes means that she feels like a flowing character because she's a ghost. But her back and forth into emotions, I think, is uh, a bit underrated uh, and works very well for the material because uh, you, you'd want likable performers and... Uh, you'd want to remember the, the core romance from the movie. And and I, I think you do, uh, even though I, 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 don't, I don't shed a tear for this. But I think they're so likable together. They're, no one is uh, a pace behind the other. You know what I mean, Paul? Yeah, and again, it's sad that she kind of got stuck in so many of these similar roles because I don't think in any of them she outdid herself in terms of what she did here as sort of a, a, a ghost maiden role. But she did have turns to do lots of other stuff. I mean, in a lot of sort of uh, modern romance dramas and, and comedies, even in a Jan Fon film. I mean, she was in um, Peony Pavilion, I think, his oh, film right from 2001. So she, you know, she's had a chance to bounce around and do a lot. Uh, Jackie Chan's City Hunter, you know, which I know many people probably uh, who are fans of the City Hunter series from Japan uh, looked upon that with much derision, but you know she seemed like she was having fun in that, and uh, you know so lots of other stuff. You know, let me ask you there, there, because granted, I haven't seen the City Hunter anime or read the manga. It seemed like Wong Jing was trying to uh, make a cartoony movie. You know, it seems like it uh, corresponded to the sensibilities of uh, the character, or, or, or was it that completely off the mark? As a matter of fact. I'm not I'm not a super expert on City Hunter myself either, but I've seen enough of it to get the the general idea. Jackie Chan is just not right for the role. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, the, if you look at the character, his 
his design artistically is much more in, in the lines of a Kenshiro, you know, type imposing, you know, uh, tall, dark, handsome looking character, but he's also a super playboy. So it's got that comedic arc running through it. I think Joey was perfectly cast for the role she was cast in. And I think that the comedic elements for the series do come out in places, um, you know, as well as the action. I just think, you know, Jackie Chan, not the right cast for that character, but it's still on its own. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy fun film. Dumb as a bag of rocks, but uh, (laughs) good fun. We got a little bit of uh, it's before that movie, but we got we can reference this uh, despite we got a little bit of a bride with white hair style erotica here. It, it, it's it's tender, but it leans towards being sensual, and it shows no nudity, of course. But uh, we, we we got a somewhat steamy love scene here, which you might not expect from the stars in each and every movie that there's romance involved in. So. There, there, there was clearly a focus to put some eroticism in this movie as well and the reviews have pointed that out that this is a mix of this and this and this and this and erotica too but um it's it's largely children's friendly in that regard i mean as paul said there, there are some there, there there's, there's violence here and there's monsters and um you know the tree demon and his her long tongue and all of that so uh, and as we get you know towards the more heavier action aspects and more special effects things like wuma throwing uh, energy bolts and energy balls and then targets blowing up physically as they hit that mixture between done on set post-production the tight editing the classical hong kong cinema explosion sound effect that is the same in each and every movie that does explosions that uh, is just uh, one of the fine, finest examples of what I prefer in, in reality. It's, it's not pure nostalgia, but I just think it's so well executed, so tight. It is so pleasing how, how, how to get, so to say, simple things like that done. But even, you know, the, the, there's complex things here. A Wuma swings his sword and there are actual post-production effects uh, attached to the sword, if you will. There's a... Uh, colors and energy attached to the swipes that he does and it doesn't feel fakey fakey like sometimes today's effects do when it's it feels more pasted in now versus then granted they're done in dark scenes most of this is set at night maybe that hides 1987 effects work a little bit better but good (laughs) good that it shows a suitable uh, uh, mood and a suitable um, setting for these things because i just think it's kicks ass when the technical crew and the cast gets gets to merge this way and no set piece as i report and their intention whether they're fighting with the tree demon or the corpses leading up to the ending or whatever nothing feels confusing either which is uh, good for the movie I, I i talked about this movie being tight and it's it's uh, develops its world and its story well and i think that applies to the various set pieces uh, action and effects wise because you you would know if you were lost in this and were just looking at noise and pretty colors, but but thankfully there it, it's way better than just noise and uh, and pretty colors. So uh, it keeps a good standard. The, the only thing I was kind of disappointed in, but if you bought into the world and bought into the filmmaking techniques, then you won't you won't have any problem with this. The, the hell ending, as big as it feels, slightly underwhelming. I don't know. It almost felt like they didn't have they were missing one or two ideas to make it 
like this orgasmic ending, if you will. Uh, but because uh, the, the final villain too is a pure puppet and it kind of looks it. But if you bought into the entire movie anyway, and narrative-wise and effects-wise, then you won't have any problem. I just noticed that, okay, in an almost perfect movie, we had a little bit of a dip. But that's okay. I still had fun. And uh, the previous 85 minutes was all, all good. And uh, and uh, so all of that will add to the fun. But uh, it, it's nitpicking, probably. Uh, it, it's the only thing. Because, because Paul, without spoiling it, they're taking care of the big villain. <laughs> you know, one of the two villains. But a big villain, nonetheless. And it's... Um, it's a talking puppet. It adds to a fun and cult appeal, of course, but it's not scary dairy as such. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a fair criticism. For myself, though, I once once they get into the underworld, it's so like I said, it's so balls to the wall, crazy. Yeah. And but it's still so manageable. And you talk about you know the use of the, the shadow and sort of the, the the lighting to maybe hide some of the practical effects and some of the action choreography. But it does it so well. There are films that attempt to do this that by design get too dark and you can't make sense of what's going on because it's too dark and others will be too bright. And then you can see wires and, and things and, and it's just not as convincing. And it's really the right um, it's the right mixture here that keeps it so dynamic. And even I've seen it so many times it's still so very entertaining and so easy to follow. I mean, yeah. because there's so much going on, you have a point where um, Leslie Chung and Joey get separated from Wu Ma and he's fighting like a horde of guys and he's fighting a big axe general and he's switching between weapons, between a bow and arrow and between his sword. And it's still, I, it, you're still able to make very clear sense of exactly what's happening, exactly like kind of where people are in this imagined space and and who's doing what and... By the end, I I still feel a sense of relief, you know, that they've had success and, and you know, the, the way things have gone and the, the way things have flowed narratively. There's not a lot of confusion on my part, as opposed to something like we talked about before, say, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, which has time jumps and characters are suddenly here again and then gone again and then here again. And is not quite as well structured, I think, in terms of storytelling and in terms of some of the action narrative that's going on yeah that was a bigger story condensed into 90 minutes uh expectedly uh, unexpectedly coherent though in terms of zoo but uh but i remember that example like well we're gonna go away now see you cut to we're back that was a fantastic adventure we were just on great let's move forward we get the the, the hell ending it is hell on a budget but thanks to the ideas it uh, gets away with it because it has inventive ideas you know when uh, all the heads fly out of a, a particular creature presumably they're you know, consumed souls and they all come out joey wong uh, at joey wong all those shots uh, insert shots of um, puppetry and um, you know, obviously grander effects can sometimes be shot in a more grand way in a more uh, expanded widescreen way but they really mix the the close and the and the and, and the not so close, so to say, really well, and it's it's, it's very seamless. So it's possibly only that the, the, the fact that they it, it's the puppet at the very very end that's uh, disappointing. Otherwise, the hell on a budget ending is uh, is all good and very creative. They, they weren't they they probably were on their biggest stage at that point because uh, there's some um, fly uh, some some shots uh, that. Uh, you know, go across that hellish landscape that's empty, 
So I think uh, we, we get the biggest scope of the movie by that point, uh, even though not all ideas are uh, 100% perfect. But boy, is it um, snappy and um, inventive despite. So, um, so yeah, all good fun and uh, full classic. So before we move on to, uh, not we, this is all you, uh, move on to some notes on the remake. Anything else you want to say about a Chinese ghost story? No, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never yeah. seen it, what's wrong with you? It's okay if you haven't watched it. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I was lambasted years ago on this show for not having watched Dragons Forever. It's, someone stopped like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> and it took a few years after I, after that for me to see Dragons Forever. So what else? I think we've all got that one movie, right, that's out there that, you know, we would say, I've never seen that. People would be like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's great to see this so much later and determine, therefore, if it survives, technically and narrative-wise, and this one, I, I think I, it's not just rose-colored glasses. I think it's a damn fine and well-executed movie on all fronts, and uh, so so exciting. Even the second one is a lot of fun and tons more effects, even if it isn't better than the original. Um, but uh, the second one is all good fun. And we got uh, Jackie Chung in the second one too to add to the cast and YC Lee, and uh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with the second one. Not as good, but good fun. We'll get to that at some point, I believe. But what happened many, many, many years later there was the fact that, well, old stuff is boring. Let's remake it for so the kids can experience it uh, proper with proper proper effects and uh, maybe not proper actors. I don't know, but uh, regardless, it's a cheeky way of saying that the, a Chinese ghost story was remade in 2011, starring Louis Ku, as well as someone who's going to get a boost internationally very soon, uh, the leading lady of that movie. So, Paul, is, uh, you're welcome to share that. But uh, despite uh, the story, uh, the star of Meow, uh, Louis Ku and all of that, uh, despite him being in there, which uh, must mean automatic uh, default, three or four stars <laughs> what is there to say about the 2011 uh, remake uh, i mean did, did it bring a, a modern vision for this story that mattered and uh, elevated it uh, uh, or was this sort of the bright with white hair meh in terms of remake quality well it's kind of a mix i will say um first of all the director here is wilson yip um yip Aishan, who i mean got a good body of work behind him so when it was coming out cinematically i was kind of excited i think a lot of people you know still had a very strong sense of trepidation because by this point mainland remakes had already had a track record of not being very good being very sort of cgi intense and cgi heavy and not really doing much to add to or improve on versions that had existed prior you know in in the prior decades I don't remember I don't remember liking this film all that much when I came out of it but upon rewatch I kind of approached it with a slightly different perspective and I think I came away with it came away from it a little bit better uh in in terms of how I would position it in my mind now the big problem they have right off the start for this version is that if you understand China censorship there's a certain thing that is not allowed to appear in China movies do you know what that thing is Ken I can never remember if it's ghosts or demons. That's not allowed. Yeah, it's ghosts. You cannot have ghosts because there's Darn no, it. there's no supernatural. You know, uh, there there are no ghosts according to the the censor bureau and and the party. Well, as a result, you know, anything that's going to have a ghost 
can't be called a ghost or like a modern day ghost story. It has to have a infernal affairs style ending that comes up a, with an 11th hour solution that says, oh, it was all psychosis, right? Or it was all in the person's mind or it was a dream. So anytime you go into a movie that is a ghost story out of mainland China, you are kind of expecting this censorship shoe to drop. And so what they did for this is they slightly shifted uh, the terminology. The characters here are no longer ghosts. Um, Su Sin is not a ghost. She is a demon. Where have we seen demons before? Painted Skin, right? The Donnie Yen remake, which I guess the um, older version was a Joey Wong film, right? So somehow demons are okay. Demons are an aspect of mythology and the supernatural that is still deemed as okay by censors. Ghosts are not. So we changed Siu Sin from uh, ethereal ghost, as we see her in, um, you know, Enchanting Shadow and in the 87 version, to now demon. And she is a demon uh, that manifests herself sometimes as a little fox demon. So again, more of a painted skin kind of reference um, than the 87 film. But the way that the, the powers that they use kind of they shift back and forth because they do talk about spirits and souls versus an actual, you know, ghostly manifestation. So it's very confusing. Um, but it's really just a terminological shift as they refer to this character now. The character of Swordsman Yin, Yin Chek Ha, who is now played by the tanned one, Louis Ku. Uh, he is a demon hunter, um, and he has fellow demon hunters in the form of people like Fan Si Wong and others. And as Ken mentioned, you have Liu Yi Fei as the title role here of Siu Sin, who had not really done a whole lot by this point in her career. And so her choice as taking on this kind of iconic role along with the person, the actor they bring on to play, uh, Ning Choi-san, uh, Yu Xiao-chun, who had done uh, the, I think, the Forever Enthralled movie, which is a movie about uh, the Chinese, the famous Chinese opera folks uh, whose names escape now, uh, Mei Lan Fang, right? Um, and he got, you know, good renown for that, so I guess they thought he'd be a good kind of Leslie transplant here. But let me ask you, Ken, if you have a movie where you have a big star like Louis Ku and a not-so-big star like uh, Yu Xiaochen, what do you think is going to happen in terms of characterization? Well, um, the, the reason I'm stumbling is that now I was totally convinced by the way that Louis had a Leslie role for some reason. I don't know, Louis can do anything. So I didn't know they called someone else. So I guess it makes sense that, that he, being slightly older, that he got the swordsman. A role, so uh, uh, I, I've been thinking uh, about that for for a minute and a half here. So you'll have to you'll have to continue. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it it is if you if you have a Louis Koo, you've got to give him a bigger part, right? Yep. Um, while the Wu Ma role, as you mentioned in the '87 film, was substantial, and actually he does have a bigger range of emotional arc that he shows in that, which is great. He's not really the forefront of the story, so now we have Louis Koo here, so he kind of takes the forefront of the story. And they give him backstory, and uh, I don't want to get too much into it for sphere of spoilers, but love triangle kind of thing, mm. which is just weird. And um, yeah, it's 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 a very different piece, I would say that from both uh, the source material, both Enchanting Shadow itself and the '87 version. And because it's now demons instead of ghosts, it's almost like. Why not even just, why even call it a Chinese ghost story? Why not just do your own thing with it? If you go into this with that mindset, 
that it's kind of its own thing, maybe more of a painted skin tale than a Chinese ghost story tale. Again, both from both stories from the the same literature, you know, collection. It's not that bad of a film, really. Where it gets bad is when they do things like throw in the Leslie song. Oh yes, we're going to use the original Leslie song in this movie. Look at us, we remembered. It it's like uh, it would have been okay if you would have been a bit more original. You know, a, a couple things. There's a peeing scene like there was in the 87 film. Um, you have people like Elvis Tsui here. Uh, as I mentioned, Fan Su Wang. Um, Kara Hoy as the tree demon who is, you know, being over the top Kara Hoy, which is always fun. And, you know, it looks pretty. And for the most part, the effects are okay. The action sequences are good until kind of the end, big spectacle. And then they start to go over to the top. Um, a bit of a bride with white hair reference that doesn't work very well, doesn't look very good on screen. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it's worth a watch just for the sake that it, it, it exists. And again, if you can change your mindset that it's not a Chinese ghost, it, it's not a good remake of a Chinese ghost story, but it is just a supernatural story uh, about demons and demon hunters, you know, I think you can go into it and have some enjoyment with it. And it, it's hard to do that, again, when they throw in a couple of the musical cues from the 87 version. But, you know, it's it's easy enough to get through. It's almost a pity recommendation. It exists, so why don't you watch it? <laughs> <laughs> they took their time to make it, so why don't you? <laughs> but it's, it's like you said, you know, it, it makes me wonder, because there's a generation of kids who are going to watch this. They're going to know who Louis Ku is. They're going to know who Liu Yifei is. And they're going to see this and go, oh, that's kind of cool. And they would look at something like the 87 version and go, oh, the, you know, the effects are so old. That's so ancient, you know. And this is going to be their point of nostalgia. For sure. For so sure. it'll be interesting to see, you know, in a decade or a decade and a half how this film fares. Now, it, this film, to my knowledge, did not win any awards um, like the 87 version did. And I don't think it was necessarily award worthy in in, in in you know in any case. And again, my main problem is, as with The Bride with White Hair which was also a Leslie Chung vehicle when they did the remake, they used the Leslie song. So it's like instead of wanting to go off and just try to really distance themselves from those and be their own thing, they're relying a little bit too much on that. But then they're changing so much that it's like, well, it's not really good as a remake and you're still trying to make this connection. If you would leave that connection out, it could have been its own thing and it might have worked much better i hinted at it uh, Liu Yifei is going to get a uh, if she wasn't majorly exposed before she's going to be majorly exposed uh, by now so in the future i don't know how many months uh, away from it we are at this point but uh, what's a big uh, international production that she is cast in um, along with some other fellow asian actors yes yeah, she is playing the lead role in disney's live action version of mulan uh, as the title character and I've only seen her in this, and I don't know in terms of her English acting ability, what she sounds like, how good she will be. I think she was fine in this as a demon seductress kind of character. The chemistry for me with her and the other characters in the film was not there the way it was for Joey Wong and, and Leslie. And even... Um, you know, uh, Betty Lowe and her co-star in Enchanting Shadow. I think there was more chemistry there. Here, it's a little bit more about 
the visual side of it, especially with some of her ghost or demon sisters, I would say, uh, they sexy them up a little bit, much more so than they do in, in, in the 87 film. And that's not to say that the 87 film isn't sexy. I mean, you've got that whole scene with Leslie in the water and mm-hmm. she's trying to keep him hidden. I mean, very, very sexy sequences there. But here it's much more modern sexy and it just, I don't know, it it it, it doesn't feel quite as artistic to me in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, you know, artistically staged, um, I would say. But still, uh, better than, again, the average remake that you've had coming out of China for some of the other stuff. So, Well, cool, cool. I might give it a, give, give it a chance. Uh, I just uh, simply uh, chose not to before this podcast because uh, I had uh, other things on my mind. Uh, and uh, only if I had another day to prepare, maybe. But uh, at this point, I'll, I'll catch it at, uh, at a later date. Because uh, if you say, well, it's, well, it's, it's okay, it can be watched, then fine, I'll, I'll yeah. go with that. Because uh, I trust you. I trust your opinion. So uh, as for availability of uh, a Chinese ghost story, it's, it is available on its own as a separate disc or in a trilogy box set on Blu-ray in Hong Kong. Knowing it's a fortune star transfer, and remaster and the specification suggests that there's remix options only on the blu-ray and fortune star have no good track record in terms of remixing from mono it uh, it also in terms of transfer and image may be upscaled from standard definition they they often do that dvd box set also that originated from the fortune star material is it's merely listed as out of stock and uh so it might be available someplace, and they would traditionally include mono on the DVD box sets. Hopefully, it's not downmixed from the remix. So keep an eye out, and uh, if those specs are important to you, otherwise, you can buy a Chinese ghost story, uh, whether or not it looks like proper uh, proper HD or not. It was also issued on a special edition DVD in the UK from Hong Kong Legends. This is still available and affordable. I think they interviewed Wu Ma, so um, they got some uh, new interviews and things like that. Uh, my preferred edition is the German DVD box set uh, that features transfers done by Atlas. And uh, they were, at least compared to the Hong Kong Legends DVD version, much more vibrant. Plus, their 5.1 remixes actually sound terrific. It essentially is wide mono, but... It really sounded natural the way they spread out the uh, the soundstage, and uh, to hear that music uh, widened a little bit was neat. There were no English subtitles on the German box set, but uh, b- back in the day when I still had this time and still this know-how, I reauthored the DVD and put uh, subtitles from the internet onto that uh, transfer. So, and, and 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 that set is still available. If you don't need English subtitles, that set is still available uh, at a decent price on. Um, on German Amazon and things like that. They they have a one, two, and three in there, and a fourth disc with um, a uh, it's German narrative documentary shot in the early nineties that went around interviewing uh, various Hong Kong stars uh, mid production of movies such as Prison of Fire Two and Twin Dragons. So we got some vintage interviews with Giant Fat. Uh, they shot some behind the scenes. At the wedding in Twin Dragons and um, early 90s interviews with Stephen Chow. But it's uh, it has German narration over it, despite them speaking English. And, and there was also extended behind-the-scenes footage from a Chinese ghost story free that you could watch on, on its own. So, um, like, takes and takes and takes and takes of, of, of small scenes, you know. So it showed that uh, these scenes that involved wire work 
and and actors uh, speaking dialogue before and then the wire work happened you got to do that over and over and over again until it's until it's right in the eyes of uh, the director in this case uh, ching sudong so that, that was neat because we don't get a lot of uh, vintage uh, behind the scenes looks at how these movies were made so um, if you can find that set that um, it has some cool extras as well Okay, we are done for this episode. Uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. The show post contains all the social media links, all the relevant links uh, connected to this episode, trailers and what have you. And uh, please support us in any way you can by listening, commenting, sharing and what have you. So uh, if you want to reach us on social media, all the links are available on site. So I'm going to keep it short and throw over to Paul for some final plug of his podcast uh, as seen on uh, tv kind of and in the south china morning post so take it away yes indeed uh, our podcast is east screen west screen and you can uh, check us out for whatever we happen to be talking about on any given week usually it's a fairly current hong kong movie or sometimes something more often than not that now is uh, floating over to netflix so you can find us at uh, concast.com Excellent. Well, we are done for this episode. Uh, it was a little bit more meteor uh, discussion and uh, some background. That's why I kept it to one movie. But so sometimes these uh, these uh, 80s uh, classics and what have you, they, they deserve a little bit more of an um, extended roundtable, even though it's only us here. So I greatly enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, we will see you for the next episode. So thank you, everybody, for watching. I've been Kenny B, and with me was Paul Fox. Thank you. Thank you.